0: welcome back to the podcast on binding the bible this is episode 91 revelation the mark of the beast and this section at the end of revelation chapter 13 which references a mark of the beast is undoubtedly the most popular and commonly known reference to the entire book of revelation and it has um, spurred on plenty of conspiracy theories. It has generated lots of discussion, people rapidly flipping through their Bibles, looking for what the mark of the beast is, the superstition surrounding the number 666 that is very prevalent even today, and lots of wild speculation about what this is, what this means, where it is, who it is, and on and on and on. And we're going to dive into all that and more on this particular episode wanting again for us to root our understanding of the Bible into the story the Bible itself is telling. And so I hope to offer a corrective to some of the conspiracy theories, but to give you some good guiding principles to understand the way Revelation is meant to be understood, interpreted, and then applied to our time. So I'm glad that you are along for the ride. Let's just jump right in. Now to begin this week's episode, allow me just to reread Revelation 13, 11 through 18, which is the passage we read last episode in episode 90. But this will remind you once again of the context um, right where this mark of the beast in the number 666 is found. So here's what John tells us in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is six, six, six. Now, as we jump into taking a look at this, um, I would just like to take a few minutes to remind us all how we are to approach a book like Revelation or any book of the Bible for that matter. Um, These books were all written in a particular context to a particular group of people at a particular period of time, and they had meaning for them in their particular situation. Now, at a popular level, um, probably most thanks to the Left Behind series of books that came out in the mid to late 90s through the early 2000s, many people believe that John's vision, or what we know of as the book of Revelation, was more or less unintelligible to him because the vision that he received really dealt with matters that were far off in the future. And in the present time, sadly, this is still the popular view. And so anytime a new politician takes office or a new vaccine comes out or a new scientific development emerges, hosts of people panic and they run to the Bible and point to some mysterious mark of the beast smack dab in the middle of the book. Now, they do this, of course, as an attempt to make the Bible relevant, um, which is actually a topic I addressed in episode 25 of this podcast. And I have, again, sadly, seen some of these people's Facebook posts where they wonder why the world doesn't see that all of these advancements in technology and other such things have been predicted in in the Bible centuries earlier. And then they go on to speak about these realities as definitive proof of the validity of the Bible. Now, what I have noticed is that many of these same people rarely ever sit down and actually read the book of Revelation. Instead, Revelation is just sitting there at the end of our Bibles, right there in in the book. It's coded symbols, just waiting to be unveiled, waiting to have its full meaning discovered when all of the right elements fall into place but that's a very poor way to read the Bible actually. In fact, for many of these people, they're not even reading it. It's just there waiting to be discovered when the right events in our time call for its attention. And in many people's attempt to be relevant, this way of looking at revelation or any other part of the Bible blows right past what relevance even means. Because without even realizing it, thousands of people actually believe that relevance means that which is immediately applicable to their own personal situation. They live in America in 2020. So the plagues being described in Revelation must be COVID-19 or the locusts from Revelation 9 must refer to Apache helicopters that will be unleashed in World War III, which somehow the, the liberals or, or another president or another nation is going to start in the future. And that this mark of the beast that we're looking at from chapter 13 must be some microchip that is going to be implanted in people's hands in place of credit cards and on and on and on. And because these are the things that are on the news in our time, many people naturally assume, again, because they assume John didn't really know what he was writing down, that the realities John writes about are describing our time. But they're not. That's not how the Bible works, if you will. The Bible, as we've been looking at all through this podcast, is simply telling us a story, A story of how God plans to restore to humanity their rightful rule over all creation, defeat sin, death, and destruction, and bring life and hope to all the nations, all for his glory. This is what is relevant to God and therefore relevant to the Bible. And so when we begin here, we see how God's people in their own time took God's hope and applied it to their lives. Then we can discern similar ways to apply that reality to our situation in our time. But we must not ever jump past their situation in order to go straight to our own. The Bible does not work that way, and it was never intended to. And one of the clearest ways that I can help you understand this is by repeating some things that we've said along the way in the podcast. I'm aware that some might be listening to this episode, and this may be the first episode you've listened to on my entire podcast because you are intrigued by what the mark of the beast is and what it means, and we'll get to that in just a second. But one of the things that's very important for us as readers of the Bible to recognize is where Revelation fits in the biblical canon. It is, in fact, the last book in the Bible, which means all of the books that came before our free game for John to be drawing upon to give us images and ideas that will fuel how we understand the book. The reason why there are so many wildly differing interpretations of what the book of Revelation means is, is reduced, not, not entirely, but in large part to the fact that many people do not know their Old Testament's or they have not allowed their Old Testaments to be properly understood through the lens of everything Jesus was and all that Jesus came to do. Again, this is the point of my particular podcast. But if we were to reach back into the Old Testament, again, which we've been doing periodically through this podcast, and we were to go back to the one place that is the most important commandment that's ever given to anybody in the old testament we could take our cues straight from jesus we could take our cues from the one who when he was asked what is the greatest commandment took everyone back to deuteronomy chapter 6 it was to a famous passage in the law known as the shema which is just the hebrew word for hear and to hear and to obey were synonyms in the hebrew language if you heard something and heard it correctly you would act on it appropriately And I want to draw your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6 because if we don't remember what the single greatest commandment is and several of the verses that follow that commandment, we won't have any idea what John is talking about when he speaks about a mark of a beast on the forehead or on the hand. I want you to remember that based upon what I just read in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, that it causes all this beast, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, a very important passage filled with context that you and I need to remember when we want to approach Revelation 13. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is really interesting. And if you know much about first century Jewish times, some of the Pharisees, some of the rabbis, some of the scribes would actually have these little boxes. They were called phylacteries, which were tied onto their hands and across their foreheads with little itty bitty scrolls of the law inside those boxes. And Jesus had not a lot of super kind things to say about people who paraded and, and evidenced their godliness by literally binding these kinds of words onto their foreheads and onto their hands. But the principle that I believe Moses intended to communicate through Deuteronomy and that the Lord intended Moses to communicate through these words was that his, the, the desire to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, that these The value of the Lord alone being the one who has captured our attention, our allegiance, our loyalty, our faith, and our trust is that it would capture our thoughts, the forehead, and our actions, what we do with our hands, who we touch, what we build, how we work in this world, etc. That is the principle And we've looked at this already in Revelation, especially in Revelation chapter three, when to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Now, three times in Revelation chapter three, we are told that the name of God, the name of the city of my God and Jesus's own name will be written on people. Now, most of us instinctively know, even if we have little to no knowledge of the book of Revelation, that at least when you are in the first few chapters, these are just individual little letters written to churches that are circulated, and they seem pretty straightforward. They seem similar even to the way you and I read letters that Paul wrote to churches like Philippians or Ephesians or Galatians. And yet somehow instinctively, when we read this, this is a sign of protection this is a sign of Jesus' care, of his sealing them and approving of them. In fact, when we get to Revelation 7, which I also brought up in um, the 144,000 in episode 73 of this podcast, episode 72, the sealed servants of God, episode 74, the white-robed multitude, and even all the way back to episode 61, the pillars in the temple where I explicitly addressed this issue that comes to the church in Philadelphia. But in Revelation chapter 7, John says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Well, now here as Revelation begins to unfold, we not only see that the name of our God and the name of Jesus is going to be written um, on the person, but here in Revelation 7, we're identified that it is also a seal of some kind that is on their foreheads. When you come to Revelation chapter 9, it says that, that these angels were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And then we find in Revelation 14:1, which we will get to in subsequent weeks, the verse that immediately follows the passage I read from Revelation 13. John says, then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, I bring all of this to your attention to say this. As the book of Revelation itself is unfolding, we have repeated references now to the name of God and the name of Jesus being sealed and being written on people's foreheads. This is really, really interesting because in Revelation 13, we are told that people will be marked on the right hand or the forehead – So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, this is interesting because we've already said in past episodes, particularly episode 89 and also in episode 90 of this podcast, which I would encourage you to go back and listen to, is that the the story that John is attempting to tell in Revelation chapters 12 and 13 is that the dragon, the beast… And this second beast, or the false prophet, is an unholy trinity. It's an unholy trinity. It is mirroring and parroting the real trinity of God the Father, who in Revelation is the one seated on the throne. The Lamb, God the Son, who is now this one who was slain but has come back from the dead. And then his spirit, who breathes new life into this community, truth-telling spirit, not a false prophet. The beast is... The name of this beast, the name of the beast versus the name of the lamb is the contrast that's going on here in Revelation chapter 13. And so what's happening here before we even get into what the number means, why the word beast, who this is referring to and how its number is 666, we are ultimately, even as the way Revelation itself is telling its own story, we are dealing here with ultimate loyalties who people look to for salvation, for freedom, protection, provision, and peace, and who you think God truly is, how you think God acts, and how you think God ought to be worshipped. If we jump back into the New Testament even, to a very familiar letter, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we read this toward the middle of chapter one. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see here, even in a letter that is very familiar to all of us, even if Revelation isn't, Paul is telling us that the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us. And we've talked about the seal of the living God and the 144,000 who were sealed and the Lord's name being written on people's foreheads. All of that is background contextual information to understand what John might be saying in Revelation chapter 13. And so let's talk about that in just a moment. All right. So with that little bit of background information, we're ready to dive straight in to the meat. And his number is 666. Now I want to point out right as we begin that the 666 is not some magical coded number that is intended to just be plastered onto anything in the world. It is very directly connected to a man, John tells us. And it's interesting because he says to calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man – and his number is 666. Six, six. Now, do not be like some have been through the history of biblical interpretation. An attempt to figure out the ways in which modern politicians are the beast. Okay, um, I have heard things I did not know this, but Ronald Wilson Reagan, a former president of the United States of America, whose three names each have six letters in them. Therefore, Ronald Wilson Reagan must be the beast. Okay, that is terrible biblical interpretation. I'm not meaning to be cruel and maybe the word terrible was too harsh. Um, That's assuming, again, English. And that's assuming that John had no idea what he was doing. He was just projecting forward and, you know, poor, poor Reagan for, you know, bothering to let his middle name be known, right, so that people could pin him down. That's not what John's doing, okay? In fact, what John is doing is something that is not unique to John. It's not even unique to Revelation. This is a, 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 um, a system of mathematical and, and um, numerical and literary connection known as gematria. And the way this works is that various letters in one language, when transliterated into Hebrew, for example, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is given a numerical value. And so when you add up the letters of the numerical values that you've attributed to those Hebrew letters, they add up to a certain number. Now, everybody in the first century knew this. In fact, if you were to give somebody an actual name of a person – Everyone would know how to apply gematria to it, and they would all come up with the same number. But John's doing something a little bit sneakier here. He's reversing the process. He's giving us the number first, and then he's asking people this calls for wisdom, meaning there might be a lot of different names whose Hebrew letters could make up the reality of who this beast was. But John has already been warning us about this beast throughout the first part of Revelation 13. When he talked about the one that was wounded by the sword and yet lived and he seemed to have a fatal wound but his mortal wound was healed and all the world worshipped the beast and saw how great he was. We looked at this previously in this podcast as being the suicide of Nero. Caesar Nero and how all of the people in Rome, many of them believed that Nero was going to return one day. He was going to come back. And so Nero at the time was the embodiment of the political power of the Roman Empire. And so when John lists for us beast, it is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This is actually doing a couple of things at once. The the first is when, when the Greek word therion, which is our translated word beast, right? The Greek word therion, when it is put into Hebrew letters and those numerical values are applied to the letters, it adds up to 666. So John is actually saying in in Gematria that the figure is literally the number of beast, the number of the word beast. But he also tells us that it is the number of a man, so, the man, as we have been looking at for John's context, is Emperor Nero, whom some Greek speakers called Neron Kaisar. A name that's spelled in equivalent Hebrew letters N R O N, Niron Q S R, Kaisar, is calculated to equal 666. And here's how it would have worked Neron Kaisar. The N was, a, its numerical value was 50. The R was 200. The O, which looks like a, a W for us, but it was this kind of like a, an omega type symbol then for the, the Hebrew alphabet, the, the vowel, uh, the vav, um, was worth six. And an N again at the end was, was a value of 50, once again. The Q in Kaisar was 100. The S was 60 and the r what as showed up in the word you know neron at the beginning is also another 200 and when you add all of that up n r w n q s r with their numerical values in hebrew you get 666 this is john's way of embedding into the letter written to the you know the christians around the roman empire not that this would get leaked out to anybody who shouldn't know So John is not embedding some coded language for you and for me to understand what in our own day is going to be representative of this number 666. He's not telling us that when you get change back at the store and they hand you $6.66 a change that you better not put it in your pocket because you're going to unknowingly be carrying around the mark of the beast. I keep seeing funny things online too. Somebody had a book – a book that was recently published in, or a YouTube channel recently published and landed on 666 reviews and jokingly, because this person knows the reality of the Mark of the Beast, but jokingly said, oh, someone please give me another subscribe so that I, I can bump off of the 666 number. But it kind of has this creepy feel to us and people have obsessed over this for years. But even historians in the second and third century, for instance, Philostratus's Life of Ap- Apollonius He writes about Nero, and here's how he describes Emperor Nero. I have seen many, many wild beasts of Arabia and India, but this beast that is commonly called a tyrant, I know not how many heads it has, nor if it be crooked of claw and armed with horrible fangs. Now, that's really interesting to me because you have a historian who lived 100 to 150 years after Revelation was written, and when he's describing Nero, he describes him like a beast. In other words, I think the way Nero lived his life was actually very bestial, and we've talked about this. Why does Revelation refer to people as beasts? And it's because when you step outside of God's divine ordering— Of God, then man, then animals, and you step outside of that order and you place yourself on par with God or above God, you actually reverse the order and begin to act like a beast. And Nero very clearly in the way he led, in the way he ruled, was a beast. He mistreated and killed his own family members out of paranoia, eventually taking his own life as we shared in past episodes Nero then, as we've already looked at, is the false lamb. The one who was believed to have been wounded by the sword and yet lived. This beast from the earth, this false prophet, directs everyone's attention to take the mark of this beast, which we know is Nero. And in the first century, Nero was the embodiment of everything that the lamb was not. He was aggressive, militaristic, Power-hungry, paranoid, greedy, obsessed with his own greatness, economically exploitative, and etc. And this economically exploitative is a really important part, which tells us in verse 17 of Revelation 13, you're going to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. And Keith Giles, in his fantastic article, The Mark of the Beast Revealed, had this to say. Roman citizens were required to publicly claim allegiance to Caesar by burning incense in his honor and proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. Those who did this received a document that allowed them to buy and sell in the marketplace. Without it, no one could purchase anything. Therefore, the mark of the beast or the document that showed your allegiance to Nero as Lord was required to buy and sell if you lived during the time when John wrote his epistle to the seven churches. Now, I, I think what... Keith Giles is, is getting at is, is great. And his idea of, of proclaiming that Caesar is Lord was a very religious and political statement in the first century. And we need to realize that when we read our New Testaments and Paul or James or the gospel writers are saying that Jesus is Lord, it was heard and was meant to be understood as an equally powerful political statement. Because to say that Jesus is Lord was to declare that Caesar is not And that's a big deal in the first century. And yet one thing that I don't know if I necessarily take total issue with Giles here, but but an area that I do wanna add back in is that even for that explanation, which I do think was historically true, um, they did receive a document, but the way John describes it is that they're gonna be marked on the right hand or the forehead. And I do think it's helpful for us to realize that based upon Deuteronomy six, which I'm confident John is drawing from, And based upon the way he speaks about names and seals being written, um, the name of God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and the name of Jesus on the foreheads of people, this is the seal of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of protection, the care that the Lord knows those who are his, that there is an allegiance and that there's a trust and that there's an intimate relationship here. And yet the fact of the matter is all through Revelation, in Deuteronomy chapter six, in Ephesians chapter one, where Paul talks about the seal of the Holy Spirit, none of these seals are visible. They're not visible. He says, you shall bind these things on your heart. The deep heart allegiances is ultimately what John, I think, is getting at because there was debates and would-be debates even in the first century. I mean I carry around coins in my pocket to do business in the marketplace, and they have Caesar's image on them. I mean these are kinds of questions that Jesus was was faced with, people trying to trap him. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What do you do with worldly monetary um, you know, units of exchange in a kingdom that demands you, you know, use the image or use the coins that bear Caesar's image. And I think Jesus's answer in, in in the book of Matthew, when he was asked this question was brilliant, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. At least the way Jesus describes it, he's talking about ultimate um, loyalty with the currency that bears the image of the one whose kingdom you are in. So when you're in Caesar's kingdom and you need to pay taxes, he's saying pay taxes. When you are in God's kingdom and you bear the image of, of the one whose kingdom you are in, the people in God's kingdom are the currency. They are they are God's treasure. They are God's treasured possession, his inheritance, which Paul describes in Ephesians 1, we are all to obtain while we wait for it through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. This idea of heart allegiance, heart loyalty, I do think is a very, very meaningful and significant part of the equation, specifically as we turn right back around in chapter 14, and we will talk about seeing people with um, Jesus's name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is very much about allegiance. It's about loyalty. It's who you look to for protection. It's the way you think things ought to be done in this world. It's how you define power, how you define throne, and how you define great authority. These are all the terms we've been looking at throughout chapters 12 and 13. And I think it's important to remember, this is how John is offering to his churches, be careful. Be careful how much power you actually attribute to Caesar. Don't forget, he's a puppet king being controlled by a dragon. And the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he can deceive you too. Don't fall victim to it. I'd like to read a quote from Eugene Boring in his commentary on the book of Revelation because I think he adds an additional component which is worth pondering here's what he says seven is the complete number and john has used it as such throughout revelation the seventh seal the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl is always the last and it represents the coming of god and his kingdom but six is often the penultimate number the number of lack and incompleteness it is also the number of judgment As the kingdom of God comes in the seventh and last of each series, the judgment of God comes in the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl. And John himself and his parishioners live in the time of the sixth emperor, the time of idolatry and eschatological plagues. 666 is thus the intensive symbolic expression of incompleteness, idolatry, judgment, non-fulfillment, evil itself raised to the third power. The number communicated by symbol, not by analysis. And I think that's excellent. It's raised to the third power, incompleteness, idolatry, judgment, non-fulfillment, right? Nero is a false Christ. And here's how N.T. Wright puts it. Jesus was the reality. Nero, just a dangerous, blasphemous copy We do well to recognize this, but we also do well to search our consciences and our own societies and inquire to what extent we too have been deceived by fakes posing as the real thing. Now, the real thing we know is the one seated on the throne and the lamb from Revelation chapters four and five. And we know that his politics is the antithesis of the kind of politics on display in chapter 13, which exercises its power either through manipulation of force, militarism, or the manipulation of words, propaganda. The lamb, however, always exercises power by suffering on a cross. Worldly governments, however religious they may claim to be, will never adopt Jesus's understanding of power. And so Michael Gorman insightfully says this, although we should not be looking for a specific individual who is the prophesied antichrist and is somehow associated with the number 666, we should always be ready to identify and disassociate from political powers that claim divine or quasi-divine status or even simply divine blessing and demand total or even simply unquestioning allegiance at times this disassociation may become costly very costly disassociation may need to become disobedience and I think after all that has been said in the past several episodes which I won't repeat here we do need to guard ourselves very closely against a civil religion John says that this calls for wisdom. And when he says that, I think he is actually challenging all readers, his own as well as us, not to some historical decoding and to figuring out what in our day this might mean, but rather to discern where in our own time propaganda or the manipulation of words is used to idolize political power. I do not think it is a stretch to say that this is always going on, but that it is especially prevalent today. Listening to the ways that propaganda, the manipulation of words, the demonstration of clearly God's divine blessing, and then when those things are used in action to oppress and to exclude and to harm others, we may need to be suspect that that is not really the way God operates in the world. What Revelation is doing to us and for us is it is redefining for us as Jesus did, who is God and how does he rule in this world? He rules through the lamb and as the lamb. And this is important. Because in our day, we're looking for a microchip or we're looking for, oh my goodness, what if I accidentally take the mark of the beast? That's not what John is communicating. And it shouldn't be the way we tend to apply it in our own time. John is speaking about heart issues. He's speaking about ultimate allegiances, ultimate loyalties. Even the parable Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25 about how he will one day separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep he will put on his right and the goats he will put on his left. You do need to realize, as, as I've seen, that Jesus is the one who tells the sheep that they're sheep and the goats that they're goats. Nowhere in that narrative do they know who they are prior to Jesus telling them. And so we don't have this idea that we're going to be able to look around at a tattoo on a person or to see a microchip implanted in a person, and then we're automatically all going to know who it is that has the mark and who doesn't. We're acting as if we have this divine insight into the human heart. The human heart is laid bare before him with whom we have to give an account. That's not to you and that's not to me. That's to Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who knows those who are his. Jesus is the one who knows where our ultimate allegiance and loyalty is. This is why John can write to churches and not simply say to them, you're good. Don't worry. You've trusted in Jesus for your salvation. You're going to go to heaven when you die. If that's all John thought salvation was, he would have never written the book of Revelation. There are temptations every single moment of every single day to place ultimate trust and ultimate power in the economy. You know what John says? Don't buy or sell unless you have the mark. This is an economic strategy here. This is put the people in power who will preserve your wealth for you. This gets pretty darn close To where people live, which again is why Jesus spent an exorbitant amount of his time talking about people's relationship with their money. Because in his kingdom, wealth does not give you an advantage over non-wealth. It certainly does in the world. And so what's a very clear way to determine whose heart allegiances are to the kingdoms of this world and whose heart allegiances are to the kingdom of God? You would have to peel back the veneer and find out what their heart relationship is with their own money. Then you would have the opportunity to tell who is sealed with the Holy spirit of promise and sealed with the name of Jesus written on their forehead. And who is looking eagerly to adopt the name of the beast written on their hands and on their foreheads. That is what is happening here. And so you do not receive this, some strange mysterious mark of the beast by accident, by drinking a monster energy drink, or by accepting a vaccine. This is not accidental. These are heart realities of where we really turn for allegiance, loyalty, trust, protection, salvation, and peace. And the way of the lamb calls us to a life that might be difficult, but to follow in his footsteps and to trust him to provide for our needs is where we will find the greatest peace and satisfaction that there is to offer. So I hope that that was helpful for you. It certainly was helpful for me going back through, studying again, reading through some commentaries, trying to pull my thoughts together. I hope you have questions or comments or thoughts. If you do, please try to find me. You can reach me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thank you for several of you that are choosing to support this podcast financially on a monthly basis. You are very kind, and I know many of you have reached out, found me on Instagram or Facebook or email, and it's always a joy to talk with you through what Jesus is doing in your life or in your church, um, as well as just if you've got questions or comments, I'd be happy to discuss book recommendations or studies that you could get into with some, some friends in your own contexts. So thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next week.